questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. Now tonight, make sure you are a subscriber. You do not want to miss tonight's full interview. Tonight we have someone who is risking his life to disseminate a lot of information. And I hope you can join us in the member section to listen to all of it. You know what to do by now. All you have to do is click on subscribe and you'll get your login immediately and we'll have access to everything we have ever done and everything that comes in the future and if you want to get in touch with me you want to be a guest on this radio program have a guest suggestion or simply have feedback you know i always love to hear from you click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com and tonight we are joined by a computer software salesman turned citizen journalist He continues to explore the hidden world of U.S. covert operations by a little-known company named DynCorp. His investigation, which started as a probe into the Clinton Foundation and the disappearances of their ex-CEO, Eric Braverman, has turned up many leads on the missing $6.5 trillion of the U.S. Treasury, including black budgets for the Department of Defense, CIA, FBI, and 27 other federal agencies. Tonight, we discuss DynCorp, Harvest, and why killing is good business, and much more with our special guest, George Webb. His YouTube channel is linked right on our website. Hello, George, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Great, Mel. Thank you. It's great to be on your show. Well, thank you for being with me. And I have to tell you, right from the beginning, you speak different languages. We enjoyed that offline. Uh, You are a multifaceted individual it's a spider web, it's a hydra, it's, it's an octopus, and it's very difficult to know exactly where I'm going to begin our interview because you discuss so many things. But as I always do with every person who comes in here, how did you turn into a, a citizen journalist from a computer salesman, software and so on, to what you do now? Well, you know, I look at a lot of, uh, in, in the web software that I sold, we look at a lot of patterns. We, we scrape the web, we spider the web, they call it. We bring back, you know, what people are talking about. We try to draw trends from that. So um, I didn't think that there was any carryover into journalism, that kind of data analysis of the web. And there's huge volumes of, of information on the web from everything from your Facebook posts to your tweets to uh, things that you say. Uh, on Instagram, et cetera. But it turns out that there is the future of journalism is, is appearing to be data analysis where you're really going out and uh, looking at all these data sources that can give you clues about what's really happening around the world versus the kind of the CNN, you know, here's what we say is happening uh, version of the world. Right from the beginning, I have to ask you, are you related to the late Gary Webb, the journalist who wrote Dark Alliance? 
No, uh, my full name is George Webb Swigert, and the reason why I shortened my name is just uh, I, I started originally uh, just as a as kind of a handle, but I am very familiar with Gary Webb's work, and I'm really kind of following in the footsteps of Gary Webb. Uh, Gary Webb, of course, wrote the famous Iran Contra series yeah. with the Dark Alliance with San Jose Mercury News, and you know he talked about Mina Airport flying guns down and bringing drugs back, and and then doing the same thing in the Los Angeles area with the CIA and this company called DynCorp, D-Y-N-C-O-R-P. And uh, I'm, that's exactly what I'm doing now. I don't know how I found my way into, doing, into following his footsteps. And there's another journalist who was, had an odd suicide death as well named Michael Rupert, yep. who also had another piece of this, which was more the software side of this and how it was all how this octopus was managed from the software side so i'm i'm kind of in between i hate to be in between two dead journalists uh but <laughs> that's where i am <laughs> crossing the rubicon an excellent work by uh, rupert and and i know for a fact well according to his his uh, companion her, her, his partner that he truly committed to suicide but but uh, gary webb that that one is very mysterious to me. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of times there are slow kill methods where you you don't want a if you're running a covert force, uh, covert operations in any country, you don't want to run around shooting journalists because it looks bad. It looks kind of like you know you're from Cuba. You know, it kind of looks like Cuba in the nineteen you know, late fifties. You know, uh, you you have these programs. Uh, to gradually degrade people, depress them, you know, break up their marriages, make sure they can't get work, and so forth. And I believe both Gary and Michael Rupert were in those types of COINTEL-type programs, where it's just this constant, slow, death-by-a-thousand cuts till you know, you're living in a trailer, which is what ended up with Michael Rupert. You know, That's exactly what happened to him, even after so many years with La a respected career in law enforcement. And you know, the CIA hard attack gun. I'm sure you're aware of that, right? Sure. Frank Church Committee. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But I think they're much more subtle. I mean, what what's interesting is the Clintons, when they get involved, um, how they change and bring the CIA, those kind of dark methods, they bring that into the FBI until, until about, uh, well, there's this presidential decision directive that Bill Clinton signs in 1997. It's kind of like an executive order, but it's a covert executive order. But I, I show it in my web series. You know, I actually show the top secret document, which has been made public now. But it basically says, bring these covert CIA tactics into the FBI so that you can start using these pe on people who are journalists who are, are, who are outspoken about certain programs that we don't want them to talk about. And uh, yeah, very much so. There, you know, I know this is hard for people to believe that in the United States there's a covert program to slow kill journalists that expose covert programs, but it's true. With all the leaks, and we'll get into the leaks and what's happening now with the Trump administration, with all the leaks we're seeing, are we witnessing, George, a gladio-like operation taking place, the, the, the former administration leaving some operatives behind to derail and delegitimize de the new administration, you think? I absolutely believe that to be true. Um, the uh, There's this uh, deputy chief of staff named Walsh, and she, uh, I, you know, worked for the McCain campaign. Um, I believe the National Security Council 
is full of, uh, you know, operatives as well. It used to be that, um, you know, the, the NSC, they would talk about an issue and it would all be ex-CIA people around the table. And then you would uh, have a vote and they would have like, let's say five votes. Well, they're, they're all upset because there's a Steve Bannon sitting at the table going, well, gee, that's just a CIA operation. <laughs> you, you want 20,000 vaccines because you planted a virus. You know, that's not, we're not going to do that. And they're like, wait, what's going on here? This, this used to work. So, and, you know, it, it, it's, it's a matter of knowledge, you know, of covert operations and, and what the practices have been in order to see it for what it is. And, and Bannon kind of just calls it out. Um, there's rumors that McCain has somehow tapped the phone of Trump mm-hmm. as well. You know, so, so, you know, if, if, if you can't have a private conversation and do a formula, formalize a strategy, you're, you're going nowhere. This is why I say Trump has to, uh, get those 650,000 emails of Hillary out so that he can expose what was happening so that he has a chance of building a new foundation, you know, for his administration. He's president already. Why doesn't he have access to that information? You know, I'm sure, and I'm told that there are many Trump supporter, supporters within the FBI. But the CIA, however, is against Trump because Trump threatens to ruin their game in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, uh, Trump, uh, you know, with, with the advisors he has, they know all about all the different uh, games going on. You know, the secret oil drilling and, and, uh, and all these side plays that that DynCor and CIA are doing. So his advisors are letting him know uh, he just needs to put his foot down and, and clean house at NSC. If he doesn't own the Security Council, he's, uh, he's hobbled right from the start. Now, how do, does he do that? Because it's not only the CIA, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say it. I think this is Mossad, this is British Intel, and there are others out there that want him out because it He's jeopardizing their game. Well, you know, Mossad is me being Israeli. <laughs> you know, we I, I'm proud of Mossad because of uh, of how small of a country we are and and how how many fingers we get into all around the world. So, in, in a way, it, you can look at that two ways from an intelligence point of view. But um, you know, old Mossad was economic spying you know, and economic infiltration. The, the new, um, you know, tendency seems to be just, uh, just trying to put gum up the works. It's not even trying to make a deal happen. It just seems to be more focused on, uh, you know, getting him impeached so that we can put in, you know, Mike Pence. So, uh, you know, that I would say British intelligence is involved from a liaison operation. Uh, if you go through British intelligence, you don't have to report to the Congress. So you don't have to go to the House Select Intelligence Committee. You don't have to go to the Senate Select Intelligence Committee to do you know, an operation. So I think British intelligence is the end around. And I think Mossad is the kind of the economic piece. But I think you have the deep state, you have the CIA folks that just want to obstruct right now. They just want him out and they want Pence in. You know, that, that's what I think the agenda is right now. Do you see similarities with the Reagan-Bush election 
perhaps not the same and you know and colorful as this election was. But when I see Reagan, who chose Bush against who he really wanted to choose, and all of a sudden March of 1981, he almost got killed there, and the one who tried to kill him was you know Hinckley, uh, uh, the family Hinckley's family was very close to the Bush family, so Bush would have been there like uh, you know very easily. Do you think that perhaps there are some within the powers that want to be that would like to see a similar scenario here where Pence takes over? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's a, actually a very strong parallel between the two. Uh, you know, I always, I, mean, I like George Bush and I went to a college that, you know, was one of George Bush's um, kind of CIA colleges. It was a, a naval ROTC, Miami University, Oxford, Ohio, and really super strong intelligence program. A lot of guys went into the CIA from there. So I like George Bush. He spoke at my graduation and so forth. And I always thought George Bush could have been a great president without having to play dirty. You know, he just didn't need to. He was a, he was a great guy, uh, but he just couldn't help himself because of his dad and because of, you know, his dad's friends, you know, with. Um, are you talking about uh, Prescott or are you talking about George Sr.? Oh, Prescott Bush. I was talking about George H. H.W. Right. Okay. But for some reason, he can't wait it out. Wall Street can't wait, and they have to do the assassination of Reagan, you know, three months in. And, uh, you know, they ended up waiting out for four years or eight years. But, you know, Bush was, I think, started Iran-Contra in 82. So they really didn't wait. Uh, and, and, and Reagan was a figurehead really from day one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think that's very much how they're trying to do it right now with Pence. With, uh, you know, just try to keep Trump occupied with all these, you know, crazy things like, you know, you didn't speak out against, you know, uh, you know, the desecration of Jewish graves in, in Missouri right. or, or, or something. But but they're doing all the covert stuff, you know, right now. Um, I think they're going to be doing the, you know, when they say, we're, we, you know, when General Mattis says we don't want to take the oil, that just means we want to take it covertly. I mean, that's. That, that's just code, you know. So that's my opinion anyway. Do you think Bush Sr. was to Reagan what Cheney was to Bush and what Pence may be to Trump? Yes, exactly. Um, I think there's a directorate within kind of the Council on Foreign Relations and the CIA. It's a, it's a group of about 12 people. Uh, not the general group of Council on Foreign Relations, but I'm talking about the inner circle. They kind of make the decisions from a foreign uh, policy point of view. And then there, there's another group that kind of makes the kind of black, you know, ops decisions from there. Um, and that's, and they're going to funnel that through Pence. I knew when Pence got the uh, VP spot, and I said, Oh boy, this is, this is Bush Reagan all over again. Um, you know, because if you heard him in uh, Europe, uh, Pence's comments about NATO, you wouldn't think he was the vice president. You wouldn't exactly. thought he was the president. Exactly <laughs> what I thought. Yeah. I mean, it's like Trump doesn't exist. They're already talking about him like he doesn't, he's not even there. <laughs> when Trump says, you know, you need to pay rent, you know, in a way, NATO, you need to pay, have all these countries pay their share. But then you have Pence there meeting with, with NATO as if, as if nothing of what Trump said mattered. 
Well, and Mattis has been the same way, and Russ yes. Tillerson's been a little, little bit more subdued. But um, you know, General Kelly, um, it's kind of like the generals are being lined up, you know, for the whatever's going to happen. I think they're going to round up all free thinkers pretty soon. Uh, we'll we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll see what happens. It's going to be an interesting uh, next year. Next twelve months are going to be very interesting. Matt or, Matt, uh, Mattis does not want to remove the. The uh, the sanctions, you know, again, contrary to what Trump wants. Well, you know, if I was Trump, I'd say, uh, you know, Tillerson's in uh, Moscow now, or he was the last couple of days. I would come back like Neville Chamberlain and wave the agreement and say, we just got $500 billion of their Arctic oil. You know, we, we lifted sanctions and we just got five, you know, declare victory. It, it's kind of like saying Hillary coming back and saying we got 20% of U.S., uh, you know, we sold 20% of the U.S. uranium to Russia, only in reverse. We can come back and say we got $500 billion of their oil, um, which is what exactly would be if we did that Exxon deal. And I don't know how that's not in the strategic interest of the United States. We're getting the, the oil for a song because it's hard to drill up there, and we have the technology and they don't. And it's not going to be a part of Putin's uh, supply. So I don't know how that's not a, a great deal for the United States. I don't know why we would want to try to slow that down. It's in our strategic interest. We, we're getting the oil. Still there? I'm here. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. Sorry, cut off there. Sorry. No problem. When you were saying about Bush being a good man and so on, and you know that he has a dark side too. I'm thinking of Arbusto. I'm thinking of of the oil platforms in the Gulf of Mexico around his his you know what how he became the CIA director. Then I fast forward to 1990 when April Gillespie met with Saddam Hussein when he was saying Kuwait is slant drilling our oil. What can we do about it? And Gillespie, based on the orders of Bush, said, you know what? We're not going to be getting involved here. You do what you need to do. And that was a setup for Saddam Hussein. What's your take on Gulf War number one? Well, you know, everything you say is true. I mean, uh, we definitely wanted a false flag or, a, a uh, you know, a, a cause of war, a cause of spell as they say, to invade Kuwait um, and then uh, southern Iraq. Um, and, and that, uh, you know, we knew, you know, the thing I guess I, I want to say about Gulf one was Bush was smart enough. He was happy enough to say, let's get all the oil, but why do we want to topple, uh, a Muslim capital that doesn't have any oil? We stay on the other side of the Tigris here. We've got all the oil in Western Iraq, which is most of it's up there. There's uh, uh, toward Mosul as well. But let them have their capital, you know. Uh, and then, you know, George Bush Jr. or, you know, W. Uh, decides to go further. And, and so as far as I, I realize that Bush has killed a lot of people and, you know, that's all spycraft and everything. But I, I just think he had a finer hand, you know, as far as how he did things and more subtle than his son and people that followed him. I guess that would be my comment about between Gulf One and Gulf War Two. Now, DynCorp, tell us what it is. When was it created? For what purpose? And I have to ask you, who owns it? Good question. Okay, so DynCorp is created about the same time the CIA is, maybe one year before. 
um, CIA has kind of a, the National Security Act of 1947 creates the CIA. And uh, Truman's idea there is that, you know, we don't want to be caught flat-footed one day, the Russians have the bomb or, or whatever, or a bigger H bomb, and we don't know where the bombs are being created and so forth. So it was supposed to be an intelligence agency collecting, you know, uh, data and so forth. What DynCorp became was, well, we want to run a lot of covert operations too. We want to topple governments. We want to have this kind of, of lever arm on other countries around the world. As a matter of fact, we want that lever arm that control in 191 different countries. So it was a very ambitious agenda. And we don't really want to have to run this stuff through Congress. We want to be able to figure out a way of funding, self-funding all these revolutions that we might want to declare all around the world, Cuba, your homeland being just one example. Um, and so that's where DynCorp is kind of created as a what they call a proprietary. In any kind of revolution, you're going to need certain basic stuff that in order to run the revolution, you're going to need planes. You're going to need helicopters later on. You're going to need um, warehouses to store weapons. You're going to need uh, transportation uh, trucks and so forth to move things around, move troops around. So DynCorp was originally started as what they call a proprietary. And still today they have the contracts for the CIA for all this stuff uh, for, for the planes, helicopter maintenance and so forth. Uh, warehousing weapons, uh, that sort of thing. Then they kind of morph into this training, trainer of police forces, training in surveillance, training in, uh, training these kind of gladio type embedded uh, police forces and, and, and resistance groups all over the world. And it's, and it's, uh, as we spoke earlier, it's all funded and originally through the mafia and, and drug uh, the drug trade, the heroin trade into into the U.S. That's how the, the whole thing gets started. Would it be safe to say that this is the parent company for all those fronts around the world? And, and when I think of Donald Rumsfeld and the $2.3 trillion that he reported to have been lost on September, he reported this fact on September 10th, 2001, and all of a sudden 9-11 happened and people forgot about it. These trillions of dollars, does DynCorp manage or knows where these trillions are? Yeah. So uh, the Promise software, P-R-O-O-M-I-S uh, software, uh, now not originally, but the covert operations were managed through this software. This is, again, what uh, Gary, uh, not Gary Webb, but this is what Michael Rupert wrote about, yeah. this Promise software, basically identifying where the covert operations were the bank accounts of these drug dealers. And one of the favorite tactics was get a local strongman to run drugs for five or six years, 10 years, like uh, Noriega in Panama. This software had the ability to then do electronic transfers. So all of a sudden, right one day before we decide to pull the rug out from under him and invade him, we would transfer all of his money to our accounts, our offshore accounts. So that was the whole uh, promise software kind of scandal that that um, Michael Rupert was was reporting on. Noriega, since you're mentioning names, I'd like to to talk about these personalities for a while. Panama, Noriega, what gotten 
did he uh, went off? Did he go off the rails? And that's why we, we got him. Uh, I think what happened is uh, what with all these uh, kind of surrogates that are running your drug trade, they all have a pang of of megalomania at some point where they go, "Hey, wait a minute! I built you. I I brought you this far. I I've given you ten billion dollars, you know, and I've and of course he's gotten a, a split, you know, ten billion for him. But at, at some point, they all have the same kind of Hey, wait a minute! I, I, I've done a lot for you in the last, you know, ten years. Let's say, and this happened with Gaddafi. This happened with Saddam Hussein. Um, or let's say it's twenty years, and then they say, well, you know, the directorate, the CIA director, or the people making these kind of foreign policy decisions say, ah, let's get rid of him. Let's topple it, and then we'll get a new guy who's, you know, hungrier and doesn't want a big a, a, a cut of the business. It's just a business decision when, when they get rid of these guys. And it happens um, when they start getting uppity. I remember 20 years ago when I moved uh, to Tucson, I was invited to a, a social gathering in the foothills at a home there. And you could over, oversee, overlook the city at night, beautiful lights. And then next to me, there was this lady, probably in her 50s or 60s. She was having too much wine, I guess. And she said, you see those lights over there? Like, yep. If the drug trade were to go down today, you would not see a single light on. Like, what? Who are you? Well, she was a retired CIA agent. And she was telling me how 50% of the economy, if not more, works on the drug trade. Would you agree with that fact? Wow, that's a great story. <laughs> I've, never, I've been to Tucson um, uh, we, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> that seems high. I would say 30%, uh, percent or 20%. Uh, I do think there is, you know, a huge demand in the U S uh, and, and unfortunately the addiction thing just makes so many people, you know, have no choice about their drug, you know, habits. Uh, 50% sounds high, but but I would say 20 for sure. Oh, maybe she was thinking of all the indirect jobs that uh, go with it that are, you know, yeah. quote unquote legal. Now, Operation X, I was mentioning this to you before we started the, the show. Operation X, can you explain what Operation X was? Uh, Meyer Lansky, uh, Loki Luciano, who was in jail, by the way. Wasn't he in jail? And it was uh, Lansky who advocated or actually lobbied to get him out of jail because... You know, since Italy was against us during the war, and he was so connected with the mafia in the ports of, of New York and so on, they could actually be positive to 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 get him out of jail. Yeah. So the idea was, and again, this goes back to the CIA being born. the 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 biggest, um, you know, law enforcement after the war uh, agency was the FBI. They've been around for fifty years, right, with J. Edgar Hoover. So in order to get and they didn't, the CIA didn't have a lot of congressional funding to do black operations. So in order to get the money, they, they had to come up with a way of funding uh, what they wanted to do overseas, these gladio operations in Europe, Eastern Europe. They wanted, the strategy always was, we'll break off pieces of the Soviet Union uh, to get the resources, to get the oil uh, and other mineral wealth. So, and that was a very successful strategy. But initially, they needed the money, so they, the CIA, instead of going out and hiring a bunch of people, 
uh, and in recruiting, and it takes a long time. They basically co-opted the uh, New York gang of Lucky Luciano, who owned the uh, Longshoremen. He owned the Longshoremen's mm-hmm. Union in uh, at the Brooklyn Docks and, and, and so forth. And they had a conference. It was a Christmas conference in 1946 where they brought in all the families, the Genovese family and, and so forth. Uh, a lot of the families from Sicily and, and said, hey, we're going to bring in heroin into, we're going to ship it to uh, uh, Havana, and then we're going to bring it from Havana up to initially New York, and we'll just sell it in Harlem. We'll just sell it to the black musicians in Harlem, and we'll do the same thing in Miami, and then uh, to uh, you know the musicians in Miami, the Cuban musicians in Miami, and then we'll do the same thing in, in New Orleans to these kind of white and black musicians in New Orleans. It'll, it, it'll be controlled. It'll be contained. But uh, what ended up happening was that the heroin trade was incredibly successful. Um, you know, you, you have those days of the ha- Apollo Theater and the Harlem Nights, you know, uh, getting very popular. And, you know, of course, the New Orleans jazz scene explodes. Yep. And, then, and then the Miami Copacabana, you know, type uh, era, uh, ex- you know, happens. And then, of course, the Cuba, the whole, you're very familiar with this, so, you know, if you watch The Godfather, the whole 1950s, mm-hmm. 60s Cuba thing as well. So the the drug trade where they thought, Lucky Luciano thought, oh, we'll control this. The Genovese family was like, no, we love this. This is great. There's so much profit here. And uh, that's how the drug trade really took off. You know, the heroin drug trade really took off in the United States. Um, was that original, uh, you know, Project X. And uh, the the guy, the CIA guy who came up with it, guy, Hellowell, is unknown. If you do a Google search on him, you won't even find him. He's been scrubbed pretty much from history. But Hellowell is the guy who came up with that that idea of we're going to send, we're going to bring the drugs in to pay for these armed Gladio teams I think the original Gladio team in Italy was like 625 teams. And these were going to be 12 to 15 man teams uh, in Italy. And then they did Gladio teams in you know every Eastern European country. It would be so easy. I mean, I'm just thinking of JFK to get rid of someone. I mean, what Reagan, he was shot. He was taken to the hospital. If he didn't, well, he didn't, he didn't die. Well, let's say that he was going to the hospital. Why didn't they, and, and I hate to, to present this this way, why wasn't he killed along the way if they really want to get, get rid of him? Same thing, and I don't mean to, to be implying this at all, but the CIA, we're talking about this Hydra that's in over 100 countries. How easy would, would it be for them to get rid of Trump if they wanted to? Oh, Trump. Well, I think, first of all, the reason why they didn't get rid of of, of Reagan is, is again, Bush, the older Bush, H.W. Bush, has just this fine hand, and he does not like to do ugly, uh, you know, if, if they mess up and they don't get him on the round one, uh, they're not going to, he's not going to do a clumsy round two uh, to finish him off. Um, I, with Trump, they're trying to do a information, you know, they're going to try to say, oh, he was with Jeffrey Epstein in 1993, and he was mm. You know, younger girl, and they're going to have a little, you know, Comey meeting behind door, closed doors, and they're going to say, "Hey, Mr. Trump, you really should just think about resigning." And you know, 
you know, we don't want this to come out and you still did a great thing. You became president and you changed everything. And so I, I think they're trying to do a soft coup right now. And then the hard coup, you know, the assassination will be, will be next. But, you know, you assassinations are, I mean, we're still talking about the Kennedy assassination, you know, 53 or, or 63 years later now. Is that right? No, 53 years later now. No. So, you know, it's, it's just, it just that's just not how they want to do it. They want to do it softer than that, I think. They don't want to disturb the economy. They don't want to they don't want to create panic. Even though sometimes I wonder if they want to do a reset and they want to bring all what they've been talking about for years. And I know this sounds like conspiracy theory, but they had Rex eighty four and they had all these things, FEMA, martial law. Yeah, well, Rex 84, I mean, and that's, for people not familiar with it, it's short for Readiness Exercise 1984. That was written by Ollie North. I mean, that was written by George Bush and Ollie North. I, again, using Contra, uh, uh, Iran-Contra funding to be able to say if there was an insurrection, if people started occupying public buildings or whatever, how would we cut off the roads? How would we cut off communications? How would we, you know, cut off... Uh, Um, you know, uh, food supply, uh, water, et cetera, to basically pen people up in large cities and, and restrict movement in large cities so that then we could operate in these, you know, uh, travel corridors and then selectively go in and kidnap and, and kill the leaders, the ringleaders. That's basically Rex 84. And Rex 84 is just gets kind of re-greened every year. You know, they, they just keep, you know, adding a few little new things with every new surveillance technology that comes out. And of course, you're developing an enemies list the whole time you're doing this. So the whole idea is a decapitation strike on all the leaders um, by watching their communications and social patterns and then, you know, you know, cordoning off these major cities. So, I mean, Rex 84 is his life. I mean, it turned into kind of Jade Helm. Uh, you know, if you want to see a, a live yeah. exercise, you know, um, but it's, it's, it's what the CIA thinks about. People think, oh, this is conspiracy theory. Well, it really isn't. It's what they think about. I mean, I always say to people, I didn't, you know, I show them the stack of paper that's taller than me. I'm six foot eight of COINTELPRO or, or MKUltra. And then I say, I didn't write this. They did. <laughs> you know, this isn't my dream here. This is something that exists. It's true. And and Kennedy said, I'm going to break up the CIA into a thousand pieces, or maybe it was two thousand pieces. Yeah, they've they've never forgotten that. They've never forgotten that. Do you think the CIA, via Dancor and all its front companies, do you think they're the ones who really, I don't want to say the world, but at least they, they rule the United States? Well, I, I definitely think there's a deep state, and I I think that it's not on all decisions, but I think on the biggies that they make the decisions. If they, for instance, say, you know, there's a gold mine in northeastern Ukraine, and there are oil and gas fields in eastern Ukraine down by Donbass, and you know what? We never got a chance to fully exploit those. We're going to get them. You know, that's we identified that, you know, Joe Biden and his son, you know, we're going to get it. Uh, or if you're talking about the Golan Heights where they discovered oil and gas and mm -hmm. then James Wol Wolsey is a part of Genie Energy along with Larry Summers and and uh, Rupert Murdoch. 
we're going to get it, you know. That was the former happen. governor of New Mexico. What was his name? Bill Richardson. He's Bill part of Genie too. Bill Richardson. Yeah, Bill Richardson. Um, we're going to we're going to get it. You know, we're going to say whatever we need to say about Assad. We're going to get that. You know, uh, you know those Golan Heights reserves. So I, I think, you know, one of the things I try to do in my series is show how resources really drive all these decisions, and that everything else is just cover story. Everything else is just window dressing. And my my recommendation is it's okay to say we want all this Golan Heights energy. We're going to take it from Mossad. That's our policy. Just make it overt. Just go out and say this is an overt energy you know grab, and we're powerful and we're going to take it. And then everybody would say, okay, well you know maybe all right, fine, you know it might make right. But it's all these machinations with you know, trying to hide these things and trying to make it look like the people's coup and trying to make it look like a civil war. I mean, Syria was never a civil war. Syria was an invasion. Libya was never a civil war. Syria, Libya was an invasion. You know, Let, Let's go uh, step by step because I'm glad we're talking about Syria and Libya. I really want to dissect these two. I still remember Hillary Clinton saying, we came, we saw, he died. Ha, ha, ha. And, and for most people, They thought that Gaddafi was this ruthless, ruthless dictator. In my opinion, he was a benevolent dictator. If you ask most people in Libya how things were before, things were really good for them. Well, it was, if you think of Alaska as a good model for Libya, everyone had an income. Everyone had a guaranteed income from the oil revenue. Oil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had about $30 billion in oil revenue a year. Uh, he sponsored a tremendous number of students coming to the United States to study in in the U.S. Uh, that was one of the big things he did. He was very active in the the Pan African movement, which was, hey, we're all kind of in this together as African nations. Let's create a African currency, kind of like the euro for, um, you know, a gold dinar. A gold dinar. Yeah, I call it the Afro because I thought it was clever. That's true. Yeah. Anyway. A gold dinar, which would be a gold-backed, a gold-backed European currency or African currency, which would have more, uh, you know, uh, solidity, uh, more backing than a dollar or a euro. Well, that really threatened the whole, you know, uh, global economic marketplace because now you're introducing a more solid currency than the dollar or the euro. Now we got problems. And anyway, uh, Gaddafi, they say, gathered up to $90 billion dollars because he was doing $30 billion dollars a year over over 40 years uh, in currency, uh, and he spread it all around Africa, and the whole idea of overthrowing him was to get this gold. Now, there's there are emails between Sid Blumenthal and Hillary saying, here's $9 billion that we found. But it, it's kind of this chase for Gaddafi's uh, gold now. You know, since Gaddafi's been killed, I'm sure they got the first nine billion, no problem. But there's another, uh, you know, eighty-five billion or so out there somewhere. Maybe they found it all by now. Who knows? But well, kind of an uh, interesting story. Also, the water under the desert, so it's going to become a garden. That area, the British Telecom, they didn't want the fact that he wanted to launched their own satellite. He was putting, what, 50% of the satellite and the rest of the African countries, the rest. So that was threatening also the revenue streams for many, many companies. But the way he was killed, I am told, 
and I don't know if this is one of the reasons why he was killed, but apparently the Clintons sent emissaries before the 2008 election, and they wanted his support. And he said, no, I'm supporting Barack Obama. And then the first thing that Hillary did when she became Secretary of State, all of a sudden, we got rid of Gaddafi. Do you link credence to that? Huh. I have never heard that piece to it before, the 2008. Uh, I... I I wouldn't be surprised. Um, you know, John McCain visits and uh, Marco Rubio and I think Lindsey Graham visit uh, Gaddafi about a year before the overthrow. And the little known secret about Libya is that they were making the chemical weapons there. The sarin gas supplies for all of Europe were being made there uh, through some kind of secret joint venture. And then those those sarin gas supplies go to Syria later after Chris Stevens is killed. Mm-hmm. So I, I I tend to think of it more in covert operations why he was killed, uh, and to get the gold. But I'll I'll have to research the uh, the Hillary Clinton angle a little bit more. The amount of attacks I see, you know, Schumer, Pelosi, I, I expect that that they're the opposition, but McCain, Graham, Rubio. It's almost as if they're part of this little cabal that is operating totally outside of what the Trump administration wants to do. Yeah, I call it the Senate Oil and, and, and Gas Club. I mean, the Senate <laughs> Arms, Armed Services Committee, if you look at it, I, I don't know how many are on the committee. I think it's maybe, I want to say 13. I think it's, it's seven and six. Um, and then there's the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which I think is similar in terms of makeup, you know, with the ranking member. But they are the ones who know about all the deals. Uh, they know about all the oil, where it is. They know about where the gold is. They know about where we can deploy force. And they know about what the CIA plan is uh, to, to, to take over that country. Um, and CIA always has a plan to topple. It's just a matter of timing. Uh, you don't want to wait till uh, things are going against you to have a covert army. And so you're really, I mean, as far as, and, you know, let's say David Petraeus is running the CIA at the time of the Libya topple. Um, it's a small group of people that are making these decisions. It's not like, you know, there's 500 people that are all involved. It's, it's, it's the CIA director and about five or six senators that are making these decisions, if you make them a part owner or part of a joint venture, uh, they're, they're behind you 100%, you know? And so their allegiance to the American people, you know, McCain just got reelected. He's got six years. He really doesn't have to worry. He's probably not going to run again. So he's really got six years of unfettered investment bonanza where he can just go around the world and say, yes, we should invade Ukraine. Yes, we should, you know, take over Crimea. Yes, we should, you know, uh, you can't show me an investment opportunity that I don't like. I'm not using my own resources to use the American armed forces. I'm not using, I'm not using my own resources to invade with the CIA, but I'm benefiting in all these joint ventures. Um, I believe that there's a joint venture uh, in Bulgaria through a company called Arsenal uh, for making, you know, uh, uh, Stinger missiles, 
uh, Raytheon is a very large contractor in Arizona. Oh, I was going to say, he's our senator and Raytheon is here. Yeah, and I believe Raytheon has a secret factory in uh, in Bulgaria through Arsenal, a very secretive operation. So um, why not? I mean, if I have a U.S., let's say I was going to buy Raytheon stock, it's very diluted. It's a very large company. But if I have a, a Raytheon subsidiary in Bulgaria making just Stinger missiles for covert operations, and now they've got it down to Leeds Little Bullet, it's like, you know, 18 inch long Stinger missiles, you know, to take helicopters out. So it's, it's the technology has been miniaturized. I am a 20% owner in that company. If it's Arsenal slash Raytheon, I don't know what they're going to call it. But, um, you know, he knows and I know he's in on that deal. So I'm just saying, hi, John. Oh, you, just, you don't mean I'm this try to tell him. figuratively? No, I'm not. I don't mean this figuratively. I don't mean this figuratively. I mean it quite literally that there is a joint venture in Bulgaria uh, with John McCain with Raytheon. <laughs> well, John McCain, ISIS. I remember some time ago when the name ISIS became part of our vernacular and, you know, the new incarnation. I'm not referring to the Egyptian goddess. The website, folks, if you want to check it out, ISIS H. Q, as in headquarters.com. They recently changed the name to SIS, Special Intelligence Service. It used to be ISIS, and the headquarters are located not too far away from me here in Fort Huachuca in, in, in Arizona, uh, one, you know, one of the largest army bases, 119 uh, square miles. They're very clever. If you try to go to a Wayback Machine to find their website, now they have what do you call it? They relay it to public.isishq.com so you can't see what it used to be. Because I remember seeing ISIS, and it was almost like a Blackwater entity. Have you seen that? Yeah, Fort Huachuca is a very famous uh, training ground of, of ISIS, and there's supposedly a, uh, uh, a camp just over the border where a lot of the training takes place. You know, because you can't fire these weapons for the first time in combat because you'll miss and, you know, whatnot. And, um, so that's supposedly across the border from Fort Huachuca is where the training grounds for ISIS are. It's kind of a combination of these uh, folks from Syria and from Libya, from all the 32 different Muslim Brotherhood companies, but then also La Raza is kind of being brought in uh, as a kind of an insurgency force for the U.S., um, and all of the, I believe, the Army Intelligence Training School. La Raza, you mean MS-13, the gangs? Uh, well, uh, I'm not going to say MS-13, because uh, I think of Guatemala when I think MS-13. But um, I'm, I'm saying, well, it could be. I, I don't know where the La Raza, uh, maybe, maybe they are recruiting from Guatemala, El Salvador, uh, you know, uh, Honduras, uh, because that's where those, uh, Mara Salvatrucha, all those. Yeah, yeah, that's where the extremists have been before. So, you know, it's like the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. They moved to Bosnia, they moved to Kosovo. Basically, starve the farmers. The farmers lose their, you know, they lose their food crop. They have to go to a cash crop. Now they have to, you know, become mercenaries. That's, that's the CIA kind of, you know, coercive method. And I think it's the same thing for, 
for Central America. Those, I think it's going to be especially El Salvador, Guatemala, uh, uh, Honduras, and Nicaragua are going to be your source nations for training and for Huachuca. This is why um, the CIA doesn't want a wall. They, they, they just don't want to apprehend. No. No, and uh, the, um, you know, the, the fact that they're training uh, these army intelligence officers there uh, as well, it, it, it just, it, it just reminds me so much of the training of the Muslim brotherhood in Egypt. They had a, a group called the Tobruk group, which is right on the border between Libya and Egypt, where they did a lot of this, you know, training where they were firing the stingers and all that sort of thing before the topple of, of Gaddafi. And it just reminds me of them Fort Huachuca being right over the border you know, getting ready to have La Raza occupy these major cities and hold our cities as hostages because they can all fire stinger missiles and take down our commercial air, air, airplane traffic. They haven't gone to that level yet. Uh, you know, they're trying to soft coup with Trump first, but I, I definitely think it's down the road. It's in the plan. You know, they're preparing. I mean, they're there are all these reports down there across the border. I can't remember the, the town in Mexico of these white smoke trails, the telltale white smoke trail of the Stinger missile. So. This is incredible. And, and I've been to that area many times, and I'm always surprised to see so many helicopters flying towards Mexico, f- military helicopters. And I'm thinking, how is the Mexican government allowing this to happen unimpeded? But obviously there's some kind of a agreement taking place just like and i don't mean to bring chemtrails to the equation but this happens in mexico on a daily basis i have a beach house there and i see them all the time and i've one day i called the mexican military and i wanted to talk to somebody from the air force and i asked can you tell us who these what these planes are for what purpose and the answer i got was they're not ours he couldn't give me any more information they're not ours so if they're not yours how are you allowing them to fly over your national airspace? Yeah, so so DynCorp has the contract for border security. And when you're the cop on the border, you can choose your place where you train. You know, they train multinational uh, peacekeeping forces on how to fly helicopters, how to do uh, invasive maneuvers, etc., and I can't remember the name of the base in um, Mexico, uh, in Arizona, where most of these operations, where, where these training operations occur. But there is, it's, it's like Medina, but it's, that's not the name of it. Uh, I can't remember the name straight off. But it's an ex-military base down your way, down by, uh, down by Tucson where these pilots are, you know, like they're training Chinese pilots or they're training. Oh, Afghan wait a pilots. second. Uh, yes, I know what you're talking about. I'll, I'll find it in a minute. Is that where the evergreen planes are, by the way? Yes, the evergreen aviation. Evergreen <laughs> you know, I, I remembered because when I moved to Tucson, I was getting my pilot's license at the time and I flew out of the, the uh, Avra Valley Airport and it was a summer day. It was really hot. And I told the my, my instructor, hey, can, can we land somewhere? It's really hot. And he says, oh, yeah, go go over there. You see where those evergreen planes are? Just go land there. And I'm like, okay. So I'm, and I'm looking at all these planes. I look, I landed. I look on my left and I see red smoke coming out of, uh, of planes and what looked to be black ops coming out of the planes. And I said, can we just stop and get some water? No, 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 no. 
If you stop, we're going to get shot. Get out now. Just, just, just do touch and go. So we left. And I said, when we, once we landed, wait, wait a second. That was really weird what I saw there. What is that? He goes, well, that's Evergreen. That's a pretty much a CIA base. What do you know about Evergreen? Well, we have an Evergreen up here, Evergreen Aviation in, uh, in, in Oregon. Uh, it's in McMinnville, Oregon. And uh, the parts, uh, so, so they have a extensive uh, parts depot. When you're running a, a maintenance operation, whatnot, let's say, just for sake of argument, let's say there's a propeller that's broken on one plane. You've got to be able to source another propeller somewhere. Now, if it's in Afghanistan, you could fly one all the way from Oregon, but the best way to do it is to source it from, let's say, Pakistan. So that operation, the inventory operation for all the CIA parts and so forth for DynCorp and, and Evergreen was based in McMinnville. Um, but the, the rat line, if you will, the informal rat line is supposed to be from somewhere in Mexico, and I don't know the exact source, but to that airport that you just mentioned, and I can't remember the name of it right off the bat, but then flying up the coast to somewhere in uh, Northern California where there's an evergreen uh, airport to some, and, and a sheriff has a heliport, an, elite, uh, an illegal heliport, a DynCorp sheriff has an illegal heliport at his home. And then the run was going all the way to McMinnville here in Oregon, and then from McMinnville, running out to ships on the Columbia Gorge, on the Columbia River, to then go up to Alaska. So it's a rat line that goes all the way from where you are, down in Arizona, up through California, Oregon, to the Columbia River, to Alaska, uh, through Evergreen, Evergreen Aviation. I am told that once uh, there was a 757. I don't know if this is true, just information I got so many years ago. A 757 owned by the U.S. Forest Service that was caught full of cocaine in that airport. You know, Bill and Hillary Clinton made $100 million a year on that little tiny airport in Mina. Mina. And if, you, if, you, if you, there's a movie coming out later this year, and it was going to be called Mina, and the name to like American hero or American something, American anthem, or it's going to come out in September. But that little airport, if you ever saw Barry Seal, the CIA pilot, the size of those planes, is a little Piper Cub, and they put the cocaine in the uh, uh, nose cone of the propeller, and then they had secret compartments in the uh, what what this company was called, the CIA front company was called Parco Meter. P-O-M, Parco Meter. And what they made was hidden compartments for the uh, the doors. They made these thick doors, uh, hidden compartments for the cocaine. Well, anyway, they would fly the plane. And these are little tiny planes. They made $100 million a year way back in 1982 with these little planes. They would flip the doors open as they were uh, approaching the landing area. And it would flip out of the doors these cocaine uh, uh, packets. <laughs> and that's how the, that's how it was done. Um, and when they'd land, they did the nose cones as well. Uh, but that was in the stone ages, as far as the drug, uh, drug trade was concerned. And so this is where that, that CIA agent that you talked to that said 50% of this is drugs could be true. You know, <laughs> you know, it just seems almost unbelievable 
that it would be that big of a drug trade. 1982, but, uh, that was during the vice presidency of uh, George H.W. Bush. It is, I'm sure, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, was there a connection between the Bushes and the Clintons when it comes to the drug trade? Well, absolutely. From day one, uh, you know, George Bush and, and Ollie North, you know, wrote the plan for Iran-Contra in 1982 uh, for MENA Airport. And Bill Clinton was the uh, selected governor for the, for the uh, you know, the partnership goes back that far. They were going to do um, the governor of um, uh, Louisiana. Uh, and I can't remember who the governor was, but they said no. There was too much pushback from the legislature. Some for some reason there was too much pushback, and they couldn't do Texas for, for I don't know why. Uh, and that's how Clinton got to be. Clinton said, "Sure, I'll I'll do it." And that's the rise of Bill Clinton. And and Hillary ran. Everyone thinks, "Oh, Hillary was in this background." Hillary ran the operation that the black ops from day one. That was through the Rose Law Firm. You know the movie The Firm. Uh, uh, was about the Rose Law Firm. Uh, it just they just changed Arkansas to to Tennessee. Uh, you know the spy thriller. Right. I can't remember the guy's name right off the bat. The Tom Cruise movie you're talking about? Yeah, the Tom Cruise movie. Yeah. This is irrelevant here, and we'll take a break and discuss much more when we come back in the second segment. But since you mentioned the Rose Law Firm, Webster Hubble, do you think he's uh, Chelsea's father? I don't think anyone who has two eyes in their head <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't see the similarities. Yeah, and, and and I don't know how many surgeries. What is it, eleven now? Yeah. Even after eleven surgeries, I say that's that's Webb Hovell's daughter. <laughs> you know, there's just no doubt, and I think she she knows it now finally, um, and uh, I think she's come to terms with it. But uh, yeah, it's Webb Hovell's daughter. Well, folks, so much more to discuss with George Webb. We have some questions from members of the audience that they sent. I also want to discuss Syria. I want to discuss what's really happening with the Trump administration, how we can really tra drain the swamp. But the thing is, George, I see a lot of neocons and a lot of swamp dwellers surrounding Trump. So how is he going to be able to unplug that swamp if he has so many people close to the intelligence apparatus close to him? But we'll get the answer on the other side. How can people learn more about your work, your YouTube channel? Do you have a website, George? Well, it keeps getting blocked and shut down. Uh, so the best thing to do is just go to George Webb and then say D-Y-N-C-O-R-P. George Webb uh, on uh, YouTube should do it, but if you really want to make sure you meet D-Y-N-T-O-R-P and you'll find my channel. I saw that you have a Twitter account, correct me if I'm wrong, called Truth Leaks, correct? Truth Leaks, yes, correct. So I saw that the website is for sale, so I hope that maybe members of the audience can put some, you know, a few dollars together and get you that domain name, Truth Leaks. That would be a great name for you, wouldn't it? Oh, I should, I should reserve that. That's a great idea. You should. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here privileged to be with George Webb. He's given his life to this research, and I hope you can learn more about his work. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thanks for listening to part one of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, head on over to the member section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. You don't want to miss the rest. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for lots of great products. 
Thank you.